I'm back. It's been a little bit. Not quite a full month, which was surprising to me because it feels like it's been longer. Feels like I haven't uploaded in like two months, but I think that's just because the last like two months for me have been bad. So it's all kind of blurring together now. It was at first just like little petty annoying things that just kept persisting and then piling on top of one another and got just really annoying. And then over the past few weeks, certain things got worse. I am not going to get into details because I am currently reviewing my legal options about some stuff. But what's relevant to you guys as my listeners is that as of almost a week ago, last Thursday, I became a little unemployed. So now I'm at a crossroads because I kind of have a new job lined up that's similar to my most recent job, but kind of better. Better benefits, better pay, better environment. But it is also slightly more demanding. The thing that I liked about my most recent job is that I spent a lot of my time just working independently and I did a lot of like organizing and filing and scanning, yada yada. And that was all stuff that I could do while listening to things on my headphones and that's how I was able to do a lot of the research for my own personal projects including things for this podcast like the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, all the stuff I did for that, I was able to do because I could actually just listen to the trial throughout quite a bit of my day at work so that I wasn't super behind when I got home. And I don't really think I'm going to be able to do that with this new job, which is disappointing because that's going to put the podcast back a little bit. It's already been a struggle, obviously, to work full time and get episodes out on a regular basis with the amount of research and work that I want to put into it. And my plan previously had been that I would stay at my job for a while and I would kind of slowly build up the podcast, get it to like, you know, the kind of quality that I want it to be, experiment a little, and then when I felt more confident with it, then I would maybe go down to part-time instead of full-time, put a little bit more time and energy into it, and then once I was able to make a decent amount of money with it, make a living, then I would just quit and do the podcast or some form of like content creation full-time. <sighs> and now this has just thrown a wrench into that plan, which is really annoying. And I also, to be completely honest with you, I don't want to start a new job. I know that I'm a very hard worker and I put a lot of energy and time into anything that I commit to and I'm kind of sick of committing to things that I don't like or that don't feel relevant to me as a person. You know, like I'm 26, I've been working since I was 16, and I've never had a job that I really, really liked. Some have been worse than others. Some have been fine, but none of them have been things that felt, like, fulfilling to me. And I know that that's, like, 
okay for some people. Some people don't need their careers to be their priority. They don't need that to be really fulfilling for them. They focus on like their family or something. I don't even know what they do. Yeah, some people just, they go to work, they make a living, and then they use that to support the things that actually brings them fulfillment, like their family or other hobbies that don't take up that much time or money or anything. And I'm just not really like that. I don't have, like, ambitions for a family. I don't want kids or anything. And I'm not really the type of person who can just go to work, mind their business, and come home. I don't mind my business, clearly. No one who has a fucking podcast just minds their business. I am always sticking my nose into things that don't initially involve me. And I I like the idea of doing that and making money with it, you know? Because it's hard to just stick my nose into shit part-time. I don't want to have to go to work five days a week and then spend all of my extra time doing the things that actually make me happy. I'd rather just do the things that make me happy five days a week. But whatever, I know that's not how life always works out. I just really, really want it to, though. And it's like, I went to fucking college, dude. I got a degree. I got a degree in electronic media and film studies. I have had four jobs since I graduated college. My degree has mattered in absolutely none of them. I didn't get the job because I had a degree. The job didn't use any of the knowledge that I accrued in school. And I didn't get paid more for having a degree. It didn't mean anything. So higher education is a scam. Sure, am I a better, more intelligent, well-rounded person because I went to college? Yeah. But what does that matter if it doesn't make me any money? Being an informed member of society has not really gotten me anywhere. In fact, I am well aware that if I do actually take the steps to file a lawsuit against my former employer, that that's going to make it even harder for me to get a new job because prospective employers don't like it when you know your rights and exercise them. It's a bit of a red flag. Though it's not like I make a habit out of suing my former employers, I've never done it before. And I have had some shitty employers. I used to work for Starbucks. I worked there for years upon years. And I was kind of bummed that, like, I left Starbucks a little over a year ago. And, like, right after, all the stores started unionizing. And I was like, god damn it. Because when I worked there, I would always, every, like, couple months, I'd be like, you know what, guys? This place fucking sucks. We should unionize. And everyone would kind of be like, oh, yeah, that sounds okay in theory, blah, 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 blah. And no one ever would commit to it. Because, I mean, Starbucks mostly hires, like, high schoolers and shit who they don't want to deal with that. And they don't need to deal with that. But then I fucking left. And everyone started unionizing. And I was like, man, I would have been such a good union rep. Maybe saying that on record is also not a good idea if I'm looking for new employment. Because some employers also don't like it if you're, uh, if you think you'd be a good union rep. It might also be a red flag. But this is the thing. It's kind of like a Taylor Swift song, which is our topic of the day. Because people will be like, I would hate dating Taylor Swift. Because then she's just going to write a song about what an asshole you are. And it's like, okay, but 
Is the solution to not date Taylor Swift or is the solution to not be an asshole to Taylor Swift? Because I wouldn't feel the need to sue anybody if they had just been fair to me. But what am I supposed to do? When I have a fucking voicemail on my phone from my supervisor saying, nobody's going to be fair to you here, like verbatim, I'm supposed to just roll over and be like, oh, okay, that's fine. Clearly that's what they thought that I would do, otherwise they wouldn't say something so blunt on a recording that's on my phone. Whatever, I need to stop talking about it. The point is, where this is all going is, I don't know if I really, really want to search for a new employer, or if I want to just actually just dedicate myself to the podcast and the YouTube channel and the all that full-time. I would really, really like to do that, but I also know that I need money and health insurance, and it especially sucks that this is all happening right around the fucking holidays. Like, I'm recording this, Thanksgiving is tomorrow, and then we gotta go right into Christmas, and I have about anyone any gifts. <sighs> sucks. So I don't know exactly what I'm gonna do yet, but if you've been listening to the podcast and you get something out of it, you enjoy it, or if you've subscribed to my YouTube channel, whatever, I uh, just, if you could just like share it and like engage with it, like on YouTube, it's really helpful, like comment, like subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, a big thing is like rating it, rate and review. I don't know why, that apparently is like a huge thing on streaming platforms. They really like to push the the podcasts that have a lot of good ratings and reviews. Even though I've I never think about rating anything. I mean I do now because I know that that's helpful to people. But like do they really expect people to write reviews for a podcast? I've never written but if you could do that, that would be kind of helpful because it would make it easier for me to be able to parlay this into something that makes money. Also, I might start a Patreon in the next like few months or so. So if you have suggestions for uh, rewards for the different tiers, like different bonus content that you might be interested in, let me know. You can send me an email. It's just jasmine at medusini.com. J-A-S-M-I-N. My name does not have an E. Or there's all the contact shit just on my website, too, just at medusini.com, so. Anyway, the rest of this episode is about Taylor Swift and the Midnight's album. It's going to be a little disjointed, I'll warn you. I really just wanted to do this kind of as a response to various hot takes and talking points that I've seen all over the internet about this album, but specifically most of what I'm talking about comes from another podcast, the New York Times Popcast, because they did two episodes on this. They did one and then they did like another listener mailbag one as a follow-up, and I thought a lot of what they were talking about was just really interesting, and this isn't like me just arguing with them or anything, it's more just me needing to weigh in. I had the idea to do this before I, like, disappeared for three weeks, but I was also just kind of 
pushing it back a little bit because I thought that Taylor might release more videos by now because she said this was going to be like a visual album so there's at least a video for Lavender Haze coming I'm pretty sure and I'm assuming some other tracks if not all of them as well but uh so far we've gotten two and I don't know when the next one's going to be released so I guess we'll just go forward. Now even though I am going to be addressing multiple different points of conversation around this album I'm not going to talk about the anti-hero fat music video thing because it just everyone has already fully exhausted that conversation. I don't have anything to add to it that hasn't already been added, so I'm just I'm just going to walk right around that one. There's also the newer conversation about the Eras tour and the Ticketmaster debacle. My overall opinion on that is just fuck Ticketmaster. Uh, me and my homies hate Ticketmaster. I've always hated Ticketmaster. I resent them for being the company that they are. They have pretty much a monopoly on the entire like live music industry, and it sucks. They have exclusivity contracts with like 80% of venues, and it is an unfair situation for absolutely everyone. The venues, the artists, the fans... The only entity that's really benefited by Ticketmaster's insane power over the industry is Ticketmaster. And I hate Ticketmaster. They're fucking evil. I thought, like, a year ago, or a couple months ago, I don't even remember when the Astroworld thing happened. Was that... was that 2022 or was that 2021? Okay, it was like a little over a year ago. It was November of 2021. But I was really hoping that that was gonna be, like the thing, the motivator that got people really looking into what an evil corporation, Ticketmaster and Live Nation is, are. I mean, Ticketmaster and Live Nation are like the same thing, so. Because they merged. And they should have been broken up a long time ago. This is just, it's insane, the amount of power they have. And there's not really any way for there to be competition within that industry at this point without actually just taking legal action and breaking them up, which I guess I saw today that um, Congress is going to hold a hearing looking at the um, the lack of competition in the ticketing industry, is what the tweet said. So that is really exciting. I also, this is not proven. It was something I saw a long time ago, and I haven't been able to locate the source for it ever since, so don't take this as like me saying that this is what happened. But there are allegations that imply that Ticketmaster and Live Nation have had some impact on the continued conservatorship of Britney Spears. Continued as in, like, at the time. It's it's done now, obviously. I'm not one of the BNN truthers or whatever. But allegedly, back in the early 2000s, Britney had gotten a little bit closer to getting out of the conservatorship, but then Ticketmaster or Live Nation, I think it might have been Live Nation at the time because it might have actually been before the merger, but they basically had it like in their contracts that they would not sponsor Britney's tours if she got out of the conservatorship, allegedly. Allegedly, they were threatening to completely like pull support from one of her tours, which would have just canceled the whole thing and she wouldn't have been able to tour if she was not still in a conservatorship. I don't know that that's true because I, 
I saw something about it like a long time ago, but I haven't been able to find that information again to actually fact check it. But I don't necessarily doubt it just because I do think that they're like low-key actually evil. And from a business standpoint, it kind of makes sense too, because obviously back in the early 2000s, the conservatorship wasn't really as controversial as it obviously became. So that being a clause in Britney's contracts wasn't really going to stir up that much scandal at the time. And it probably also was seen as a liability for her to be free because the conservatorship was kind of credited for the status quo of her career for that period. So I do think it makes sense. I don't know for sure that it's true. Regardless, I have been preying on the downfall of Live Nation and Ticketmaster for forever, so I really hope that this disaster with the Eras Tour finally motivates that. And I know that some people have been kind of disappointed with Taylor's statements about it because she was kind of vague when she was talking about everything she did kind of put some blame on Ticketmaster, which I appreciated with a somewhat, like, pointed way of saying we asked them several times if they could handle this kind of demand, and they assured us yes. So she is placing blame on them, but she hasn't really come out directly against them, or she hasn't offered any sort of resolution. But also, I think that that makes sense with, like, I don't know what's in her contracts. All that stuff has to be probably approved by her attorneys. And, you know, who knows? I mean, I just always assume there's, like, real tricky legal stuff involved in this. So I don't ever want to make assumptions about what artists can or can't be saying or doing in a situation like this. And Taylor's a pretty smart person when it comes to PR. So I'm sure if it was feasible for her to actually make, like, a hard stance statement against Ticketmaster, she would be doing that because that would definitely earn her a lot of points in a lot of people's books. So if she's not doing that, I assume there's a reason. So at the moment, I'm not too mad at Taylor about it, though I will say me and my friends got fucked over because we were trying to get tickets and the whole thing was a disaster and now the only tickets that are available are the resale ones that are going for like thousands of dollars and I'm not doing that, especially when I'm unemployed. So I'd love it if this stuff could get sorted out so that I could go see the show. But I also can't imagine too, I mean, it's the Eras tour so it's supposed to be going through like her entire career up until this point and that's so many big songs that she would have to put in the set list like it kind of stresses me out to think about it because I want like full songs right I don't want just a mashup but I don't know how she's gonna fit all of it into one tour especially when she hasn't toured her most recent like four albums at least she can kind of skip over some stuff from the first albums because she already did live tours of that you can go see it but like what is the emphasis going to be on Lover, Folklore, Evermore, and now Midnights? Those should be a little more important and a little bit more weighted in the set list. But there's so many songs on all of those albums. I don't know, I guess I would say we'll see, but maybe I won't see if I can't get the fucking tickets. 
But whatever, let's just talk about Midnight's as an album. I feel like I should get my overall thoughts about it out of the way. My general review is... It's okay. It's good. It's a good album. I think that in terms of the artistic development of Taylor Swift, it feels like it is meant to be between Lover and then Folklore and Evermore, which I'll just refer to from this point on as Folkmore instead of saying both album names because, you know, they're a package. I took some notes. So let's see, here we got... So, Midnight Rain and Sweet Nothing, I think, are kind of boring, but they are listenable. Like, if I'm going to listen to the entire album, those songs were not going to, like, ruin my experience. Maroon is a full skip for me. I don't like Maroon. I think it's really boring. It doesn't have anything that I find all that interesting. But to the album's credit, that's the only song on the entire album that I think is, like, a full skip. All the other songs I might have some issues with but I overall like them. Antihero is definitely the most single-sounding song, and that is good and bad. It's catchy, it's good as, like, a TikTok song. It sounds a little bit like it was maybe made with TikTok in mind, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it is catchy and predictable in a way that it's not something that I feel like I need to, like, listen to again immediately after hearing it, you know? It gets a little old on, like, repeat listens. Bejeweled is the song that me wanted to be. I fucking hate me. It's one of my least favorite Taylor songs. Though I'll talk about what my absolute least favorite Taylor song is in a minute. But Bejeweled, I think, gives me a better idea of what I think she was aiming for with me. So I'm not going to say it makes me appreciate me more, but it... It makes me, like, appreciate the intentions behind me more, I guess. The execution is still just not good. But Bejeweled I like. Now with Snow on the Beach, there have obviously been a lot of memes made about that in Lana's very sparse contributions vocally, though she is also credited as a writer on the song, and this I thought was interesting when the podcast brought it up. As far as the pure lyric writing, what percent of the lyric writing do we feel is Lana on this? I think it's yeah. possible that she is doing Lana, but not literally doing Lana. She's and then, trying and, to write a Lana Del Rey song. Yes. Oh, that's what you think? Like, yeah. like a dear John, like a yep. dear John, but yes. with someone she likes. And then I, and then I think, <laughs> and then you probably get her coming around on the back end when she says, "Oh, I wrote this like in Lana mode. We might as well just get her on it." Okay, Absolutely. the most all right, the most old school Lana moment in here that I think you're right could just be now that I think about it, Lana written. Now I'm all for you, like Janet. Can this be a real thing? A thousand percent. Like, that, that is no universe. Yeah, no universe. Taylor is wrote that, that. Is that Taylor writing as Lana? No, or is that Lana? No, writing it's Lana. Taylor. That's it's Lana. So I think it's old Taylor school writing Lana. for Lana. And that's an interesting question. I don't know that we'll ever get like a definitive answer to that. But I think that the fact that that question is even something we can pose is kind of representative of what I do appreciate about Snow on the Beach. I understand why people were a little bit disappointed that Lana's voice wasn't on the track more because she's credited as a feature, so you would expect her to take a little bit more of a spotlight on the song itself. 
But I think that that credit of featuring Lana Del Rey is really just an homage to Taylor's admiration for Lana and the influence that Lana has had over Taylor's music, which Taylor has talked about for a long time. So I I really like the track. I think that it's fine that Lana is credited as a feature, even if you can't really hear her voice all that well. Because the fact that they're collaborating on this song almost just feels more symbolic to me. And I also have to say that I've just been burned so many times before with different collaborations that were really hyped up and that were a marketing gimmick more than anything else. The Don't Call Me Angel song with Ariana, Miley, and Lana. Sure, all three of those singers are on the track and you can definitely hear their vocal contributions, though Ariana definitely takes the lead of the entire song. It feels like a song that someone was like, oh fuck, this is a Charlie's Angels movie, we need like two other girls on this to make it work with the theme of the soundtrack. And then it's like, but do these three people even go together on this song all that well? No, not really. And then there was the Lady Gaga Florence and the Machine collab on Joanne that I was so fucking hyped for. I was so excited because I love Gaga and Florence and it's actually their worst song. It's so disappointing. And so for me, I'm like, I would rather have a song with kind of minimal contributions from one of the features as long as that minimal contribution works for the song. And I don't think that there's anything on Snow on the Beach that I don't like. Like, it's a perfectly good song. So don't force Lana's vocals onto it if that's not what was absolutely necessary. Sometimes less is more. And then You're On Your Own Kid, I think takes too long to get to the build for the song, but once it gets there, I'm on board. Vigilante shit sounds like a Reputation track if Reputation had come out after Billie Eilish's debut album. Some of the lyrics are definitely cringe, but some of them I think work really well. There's something about that line, picture me thick as thieves with your ex-wife, that I, I just really like it. I don't know why. It makes me want Taylor Swift and Kim Kardashian to do something together, even though I think that would ultimately be a horrible idea because it would provoke Kanye West, and we don't want to do that right now. But still, I mean, Kanye's out doing shit with Ray J. I think that Kim should be featured in, like, the music video for Vigilante shit, and she should be on screen with that line about the ex-wife. Though I don't know that that line is supposed to be about Kanye. It might be about, I don't know, does Scooter have an ex-wife? And then Labyrinth, I really, really like. And Mastermind is okay. So overall, a good album. Not quite as good as Folkmore, but still maybe a step above some of her other pop releases. It's at least a lot tighter. There's only 13 songs, which by itself just kind of gives it a better cohesion than some of her previous albums. Like Lover was 18 tracks. And yeah, both Folkmore albums were also pretty long. I think that she definitely could have trimmed the fat there a bit, but they are also so cohesive and the writing is so good that I just don't really mind it as much as I do with some of her more sprawling releases, like Lovers a bit all over the place, as is Reputation. But I appreciate the effort here to put all of the, like, 
more skippable, mediocre tracks on the bonus track list, except for, like, two of them. I mean, Glitch is okay. I still don't think it's as good as the other tracks on the album. I mean, better than Maroon, probably, but, you know. And then Would've, Could've, Should've is definitely the best song of the bonus tracks and one of the best songs of the entire project, but I get that it doesn't really fit the vibe of the main 13 tracks, so I see why she would leave it off of the album. But I hope that she takes this approach more in the future instead of doing like an 18 track album, do an album that's pared down to like around 10-ish, maybe a little more, and then put the less good songs on the bonus track list. So fans still get it, but it's not actually interfering with what the main album is doing. Now I want to back up a bit because I know that I said that this is a step above her other pop albums, and I don't want it to seem like I am saying that pop music is inherently worse than the more like folksy production of Folkmore. I saw a tweet that said, if Midnight's lyrics had been made with Folklore's production, no one would be criticizing the lyrics, and that's just absolutely not true. Print off the lyrics for all the songs in Folklore, and print off all the lyrics for the songs in Midnight's. They're not the same. I understand the defensiveness when it comes to music critics automatically preferring things that have a more folksy vibe or are more analog rather than digital and kind of turning their nose up at like pure pop. I get the defensiveness. I understand. But it doesn't apply here. I guarantee you the criticism that Taylor is getting because of the lyrics on Midnight's is not because she's making a pop album again. The lyrics are worse. They're not awful but they're not as good as what she was doing on either Folkmore albums. They're just not. I am the biggest defender of pop music in the world. I fucking love it. It's my favorite. And I absolutely think that you can exhibit your songwriting talent in a pop song. And Taylor Swift has done that on many occasions. Like, some of her best songs are pure fucking pop. Getaway Car, Delicate, Blank Space, Style wildest dreams there's no ambiguity about that those are pop songs but taylor definitely does have a tendency when she goes into full pop star mode to let her skills as a songwriter start to slip the best way that i can describe it is that she just gets a little lost in the sauce like it will never not be wild to me that the girl who wrote State of Grace and All Too Well by herself as, like, the person with sole writing credits on that song, she can make those and then an album later make Bad Blood and then make it a single. Like, she believed in that song that much that she was like, I'm gonna make this a single and I'm gonna put Kendrick Lamar on the remix. What? I said earlier that I would mention what the worst Taylor Swift song is, and it's that one. Bad Blood is bad. It's just not good at all. It sounds like the lyrics were just placeholders that she meant to replace with something else later on, and she was just getting the basic idea of the song down, like, oh, now we've got Bad Blood, used to be Mad Love, what's you done? Like, putting the idea down, 
this is going to be a song about a friendship that's soured. And then she just forgot to write better lyrics later. Taylor Swift is a smart businesswoman. She's calculated in a good way. She's good at PR. She's smart about her image. She knows how to do a good album rollout. And all of that stuff goes really far with me. I respect it a lot. She's also an incredibly talented songwriter who clearly cares a lot about her craft and puts a lot of time and effort into making good music. And many times, those two sides of her can come together to make some really cool shit, like Blank Space, perfectly written pop song that ironically plays with Taylor's image as a pop star, Style, another very smartly written piece of songwriting that utilizes Taylor's known penchant for referencing men she's been publicly associated with in the past. Those are great songs. So she's definitely capable of taking the meta-narrative of her career and then finding ways to express that in really cool artistic ways. But then she's also capable of putting out songs like Bad Blood that feel like a musical press conference, like an obligation to just acknowledge, like, yes, me and Katy Perry are in a feud. Here's my official song about it. And it's just really dry artistically and also, again, just bad lyrically and musically because she gets lost in the sauce. Now on that, I want to go back to a conversation that took place on the New York Times podcast about the meta-narrative of Taylor Swift and how she uses it in her songwriting. Now clearly, since I already gave the examples of blank space and style, I don't think that writing with the meta-narrative of someone's career in mind is necessarily bad, and I think that Taylor is definitely able to do that whilst still displaying her talent as a songwriter. But I do think that Taylor gaining the reputation as someone who will be addressing things from her public narrative in her music has impacted her ability to tell a compelling story and also just makes the whole thing kind of tiring because it's the same shit album after album. Now, here's where I'm really going to disagree on some of the opinions expressed on the New York Times podcast. No, oh, that's Midnight Rain. Okay, that's a Hiddleston song to me. I think she mentions a holiday. Remember the the 4th of July mm. party shirt? Wait, is like, there, that's not the Gyllenhaal song? Isn't there a Gyllenhaal song on oh, there, Oh, you too? think that's a Gyllenhaal song? No. I, I, I felt th- like the one with the New York socks, whatever thing. Isn't that a Gyllenhaal song? Oh, I... Can I take an unpopular position here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's you that, JP? I don't care. Yeah. I'm so yeah. sick. I'm sick of the meta narrative. I'm sick of the fan service. I'm sick of it. Please write songs. Yeah. You know, but don't that's what folklore it. was. And folklore was yes. so yes. good. I know this is a controversial opinion Bro. on this. But JP, I know you're I'm with about me. About to mute this. you. Like, that, is, you Joe. that is about to mute you. Like Taylor Swift brought everything together that she's good at. And she wrote songs that are not about Taylor Swift TM. The idea that the Folkmore albums are totally meta-narrative-free is just absolutely not true. Yes, a lot of the appeal for those albums was that Taylor was writing in a way that was a little bit more abstract. She was telling stories of fictional characters and stories of other people, not just going over her own life and her own experiences and making references to her own 
love life and the people she's been associated with, the meta-narrative arc in those albums is definitely less distinct than in albums prior, but it's still there. Very, very much. So let's start with folklore. First of all, the opening track, The One. I'm doing good, I'm on some new shit. That in itself is a reference to Taylor's past work, because it's an acknowledgement that in this record, she's on some new shit. She's doing a new style. She's experimenting with new sounds. And even the inclusion there of the swear word, shit, is kind of new for Taylor. She wasn't really known to be an artist that wrote explicit material. This is also another conversation that's kind of surrounded Midnight's and the idea that Taylor Swift like just learned how to swear. And I have to say, I don't think that it's as bad as some people are making it out to be. Like, I think that her saying shit on Lavender Haze, that works for me. It fits in with the song. It doesn't immediately jump out to me as being a weird thing for Taylor to do. I think it works with her persona. But I will say that in folklore, Mad Woman. Does she smile? Or does she mouth fuck you forever? Ah, oh, that one is bad. First of all, it sounds really out of place. And the way that it's phrased, it sounds to me every time like she's saying, not does she mouth comma, and then in quotations, fuck you forever. It sounds like she's saying, does she mouth fuck you forever? Like, mouth hyphen fuck. Like, like it's a really aggressive reference to oral sex. Is she gonna mouth fuck you forever? That's what it sounds like. And I feel like if Taylor Swift was better at swearing, she would have realized that. Anyway, moving on. Last of the American Dynasty also. She starts by telling the story of Rebecca Harkness, who happened to be the previous owner of Taylor's current house. And then on the bridge, she compares Rebecca to herself. Free of women with madness, the men in bad habits, and then it was bought by me. Who knows if I never showed up, what could have been? There goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen. And her own time in the public eye, and how she ruined everything. Best meta narrative. Then there's Mirrorball, which also contains some meta commentary on her public image and her adaptiveness as a public figure and the flexibility of her persona. Then Invisible String contains direct references to her career. Bad was the plot of the song in the cab on your first trip to LA. And then Bold was the waitress on our three-year trip getting lunch down by the lakes. She said I looked like an American singer. I mean, come on. Mad Woman feels very in response to the music industry and entertainment media's treatment of Taylor, as well as the public reception toward her image. The Lakes, which is a bonus track, but it does still kind of count, especially because with folklore, there aren't that many bonus tracks, so I feel like we have to take this one a little bit more seriously. We've got lines like, my elegies eulogize me, hunters with cell phones, those Windmere peaks look like a perfect place to cry, which is a reference to Windmere Lake, which therefore a reference to Joe Alwyn, her British boyfriend. 
And there's the very, very on-the-nose line aimed at Scooter Braun. I've come too far to watch some name-dropping sleeves Tell me what are my words worth The whole song is about Taylor wanting to claim her place among some of the world's greatest writers. So again, meta-narrative. Continues on Evermore, yet again with the very first track, Willow. I come back stronger than a 90s trend. Which references Taylor's own ability to reinvent herself and regain favor in the public consciousness, akin to other songs in Taylor's discography that are also very meta. I mean, I literally saw fans using that line in captions on, like, screenshots of Taylor's place on the charts to be like, oh my god, look, she comes back stronger than a 90s trend. And there were different theories about if she was shading another specific artist, perhaps one who was big in the 90s, or someone who makes music that evokes 90s nostalgia. There were also theories about Gold Rush possibly being about Harry Styles, especially because he had the song Golden on Fine Line. I don't really believe that though, because there's the line in that song about at dinner parties I call you out on your contrarian shit. I don't think Harry Styles is being contrarian at dinner parties. He seems very agreeable overall, to actually kind of an annoying degree. Like, I would like Harry Styles to get a little more contrarian. So if he has that side to him, I, I suggest he brings it out. And then Coney Island references Delicate, which obviously is another Taylor song, and it references walking up to a podium and forgetting someone's name, which I guess Calvin Harris did that to Taylor at some point, either while they were dating or like right after. I'm not totally up on the lore, to be honest with you, but I know that that was a scandal within the Swifty community at some point, so again narrative. Long story short, seems to reference a lot of Taylor's heartbreaks throughout her career and her life, most of which is a part of her public narrative. Closure is supposedly about Carly Kloss, and then the bonus track It's Time to Go, more references to the battle over the ownership of Taylor's music, and more references to Carly Kloss. So we really can't say that the strengths of Folklore and Evermore were totally based on the lack of meta-narrative and the focus on abstract storytelling, because there is meta-narrative in those albums. It's just that when Taylor pulls that off well, you don't notice it quite as much as when she, again, gets a little lost in the sauce and starts treating her albums like musical press conferences. The problem with Midnight's is definitely not that it's too meta, it's that the meta commentary within it isn't done very well. Now how I think Taylor could have improved that leads us into our next bit of conversation here with the question, is Midnight's a concept album? Now I'm taking this definition from the very official source that is Wikipedia. A concept album is an album whose tracks hold a larger purpose or meaning collectively than they do individually. This is typically achieved through a single central narrative or theme, which can be instrumental, compositional, or lyrical. That in itself is pretty vague, and I think there are a lot of albums that can get classified as concept albums that I would say are more just like cohesive albums with some unifying themes. Like a concept album to me, is like 
Dark Side of the Moon or The Wall or American Idiot or more recently Dawn FM, which I guess is a part of a trilogy for the weekend and is going to be concluded in the next release that he puts out. I think the standards that I would look for is like, is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Do all of the songs on this album work better because they're on the album? And does the track list matter? So let's use Dark Side of the Moon as an example because I don't think that that album's status as a concept album is really in question. I think we all kind of agree that it is. So that album is moving through different parts as it goes. It starts with Speak to Me and Breathe, which introduced the concept of life and its physical components. Then you get on to like On the Run, Time, Money, which go into the social circumstances of humanity. And then you have Brain Damage, which looks at how certain social circumstances can impact a person psychologically. And Eclipse is like the overview of all of it. All that you touch, all that you see, blah, 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 blah. Look, I don't claim to fully understand Dark Side of the Moon and its conceptual nature, but I do know when listening to it that there is an overall narrative and there's a development. And the track list, the way that it's put together, all contributes to that. There's clearly some intentional movement thematically from track one to track ten, and if you switched the order of every song around, the album would be something different. With Midnight's, I don't see that same kind of intentionality behind the album. Like, Lavender Haze is a good opener because it sets up the sound of the record, but I don't think it really plants the seeds for the rest of the album thematically. You could really remove any song from Midnight's and it wouldn't significantly alter the meaning of the entire album. I don't feel like I'm listening to something that's specifically enhanced by listening to the entire record. I feel very comfortable taking the songs out of context and not really losing anything. I think sometimes pop stars will use terms like concept album more or less as a marketing gimmick, kind of like a tagline to describe the overall vibe of the record. And in doing so, they will kind of stretch the interpretations of their work to fit into the mold of a concept album. A really good example for that for me is The Fame Monster, where if you listen to Lady Gaga on interviews from that time, she would say that each song represented like fear of something, fear of sex, fear of alcohol, fear of men, fear of fame. I can kind of see that when listening to the album, but also it's like, you could kind of say that about like any song, really. There's like some underlying fear behind most things. So it seems like you just took a little grain of truth and stretched it and tried to put some structure around the vibe of the EP. And I'm not hating on that. Do what you gotta do to sell an album. And I'm a big fan of marketing gimmicks overall. I think they're cute. But with Midnight specifically, I do think that in a way, this could have been a really cool concept album if Taylor had just like really committed to it. Now, I do think, and this seemed to also be the opinion of some of the other people on the podcast, that Midnight's is like low-key a collection of elevated vault tracks. 
as Taylor's been going through her discography, she's reliving some experiences emotionally, probably. And that maybe has prompted her to want to explore some old themes in her music again. And she's literally going through her old catalog. So what I think might have happened with most, if not all, of these songs is that these were songs that she already had at least started writing when she was making her old albums, and maybe she completely radically transformed them while putting them on Midnight's, or maybe she just made some minor changes, or maybe some of them are literally just like, this is a song that was supposed to be on an old album, but she doesn't want to say that because it would probably be a not good marketing idea to just tell people, this is an album of leftovers. Now, considering that, Midnight's definitely has a very impressive cohesiveness because these definitely all sound like songs that were meant to be on different albums, but they do have a 2022 Taylor Swift production. By, I guess, Taylor Swift production, I mean, like, Taylor and Jack Antonoff. So, they sound okay together in this record. But... Definitely, there are remnants of past records that make me suspicious. And I think that Taylor could have made this a really, really cool album if she had just committed to making the album a structured walkthrough of her entire career. Like, actually allowed herself to retread key events in her life as if she's re-experiencing them instead of just referencing them. An autobiography turned rock opera is what I would want Midnight's to be. I know I complimented how tight this album was earlier with only 13 tracks, and this would absolutely make the album longer if she were to actually go in that direction. I mean, maybe it wouldn't even all fit into one album. Maybe she could have her own little trilogy. I'd be down for it. As long as she brought a greater level of detail to the storytelling of the album, with an effort to make the scenes a little bit more visceral. Take me through different movements. Make me feel like I am Taylor Swift, the country star. And then move me into Taylor Swift, the pop star. And have the experience feel really real and really personal. Instead of just like, here's an overview of all the shit that I've done before. Here's what Reputation would have sounded like if Billie Eilish had been a fully established force in the pop world. I don't want to hear Billie Eilish version Reputation. I want to hear what it felt like to be Taylor Swift while making Reputation. And I don't think that this album offers that. Even as it dips its toes into exploring Taylor's past work. All in all, I just think that this would've been a better album with a slightly changed perspective. Taylor could've really taken her songwriting to a new level. And because I know she's absolutely capable of incredible things, I would argue she should've been a little more ambitious with this project. Do you get where I'm going here? I want to talk about would've, could've, should've. So not only is this the best 3AM track, and maybe also one of Taylor's best songs, 
it exemplifies what I'm talking about in what I wish Taylor had done with Midnight's. Even though it doesn't really fit the style of Midnight's currently, and that's why I think it was a bonus track, because it's definitely just as strong of a song as all the tracks on the Standard Edition, it just doesn't really sound like those songs. But, like the others on Midnight's, it relitigates events already covered in past Taylor records, specifically her relationship with John Mayer. If I was some painted, it's better. So while vigilante shit sounds like a fulfillment of a perceived need for Taylor to have a reputation era reminiscent track where she plays a more villainous version of herself and it therefore feels a lot more fanservice-y, would've, could've, should've feels like a genuine moment in which an adult woman contemplates the damage a past event had on her life thereafter. The perspective feels a lot more personal. On that note, I saw a lot of people on Twitter making fun of Taylor for this song because her relationship with John Mayer happened when she was 19 and she should just get over it, it was so long ago. And here's what I have to say about that. Taylor Swift, as well as everybody else, is allowed to be upset by something that happened when she was 19. Everyone is allowed to be upset about things that happened to them a long time ago because those things do continue to affect you. There's this like little thing that humans go through that informs our worldview and our responses to new situations. It's called trauma and everybody has like a little bit of it. But let's move on to another wild fucking take that I saw on Twitter.com. Now this one is kind of the opposite of the one that I mentioned earlier where someone had tweeted that if Midnight's had had Folklore's production that no one would be criticizing the lyrics. This tweet said that if Katy Perry had released Midnight's, it would be critically panned. Like, Taylor Swift is only getting the positive reviews she's getting because she's Taylor Swift, and I guess Katy Perry doesn't get good reviews because she's Katy Perry, and not because, you know, they just both put out different standards of work, and one is kind of a better songwriter than the other. Look, here's the thing. I like Katy Perry as a performer, and as a pop artist, she makes good, catchy music. Some of it I don't think has aged all that well. Like, the production on a lot of her 2010s tracks, it, they sound like 2010s tracks. They are a bit dated, but she is an incredible performer. And though I think that pop music definitely holds the potential for great songwriting, there is a lot about pop music and the pop industry that relies on visuals and an ability to construct an engaging persona and be theatrical and smart about the overall experience that you are giving your audience. And Katy Perry gives her audience some great experiences. She's not an amazing songwriter. She's good. She's fine. She writes a lot of her own music and those songs are hits for a reason. But in terms of just, like, lyrical craft, she's not on Taylor Swift's level. If Katy Perry had released Midnight's, 
I would lose my goddamn mind. I would be so excited. Because as far as songwriting goes, there is more craftsmanship in this album than any Katie album. Again, that's not a knock on Katie because I think her and Taylor just have different priorities when it comes to their artistry. But let's not pretend that Katie is somehow on the level of Taylor Swift in terms of her songwriting and would be getting more credit if she just happened to be Taylor Swift. In fact, I think that a lot of the habits that Taylor can sometimes fall into that undermine her talent as a songwriter come from the same tropes that define Katy Perry's entire career. Lots of mixed metaphors in her lyrics, attempts to write music that's mostly anthemic, and songs that have meanings that could apply to a very wide audience, which comes from a lack of concrete language and lyrics that are more abstract. So like, let's compare two different Taylor songs, with one of them being a little bit more Katy Perry-esque than the other. And the Katy Perry-esque track would be Shake It Off. Let's compare that to Out of the Woods. I'm comparing these two songs because I wanted to be fair and pick songs that I thought were at least kind of thematically similar. And they are both more or less about resilience in a situation, though the context is a little bit different. And they both have kind of repetitive lyrics, but I'm not going to read them out in the same kind of repetitive manner that they're recorded in, because I think that like saying repetitive lyrics out loud in a really dry manner is a very cheap way to get lyrics to sound worse than they actually are, and I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. But let's look at these two songs side by side. So Shake It Off, this is from the pre-chorus to the chorus, but I keep cruising, can't stop, won't stop moving. It's like I got this music in my mind saying it's going to be all right because the player's going to play and the hater's going to hate. Baby, I'm just going to shake, shake it off. Heartbreaker's going to break and the faker's going to fake. Baby, I'm just going to shake, I shake it off. Now, there's nothing wrong with that song. The same way that there's nothing wrong with most Katy Perry songs. Like, if they come on at a wedding, I will be dancing. But in terms of a song that you want to, like, sit with, and decode the lyrics to, not really up to par with Taylor's other work. And let's look at that through Out of the Woods, starting at the bridge. Remember when you hit the brakes too soon, 20 stitches in the hospital room, when you started crying, baby, I did too, but when the sun came up, I was looking at you. Remember when we couldn't take the heat? I walked out, I said, I'm setting you free. But the monsters turned out to be just trees. When the sun came up, you were looking at me. Do you see the difference there in how she tells a story visually and doesn't specifically rely on similes or vague statements about haters hating or shaking it off? There are metaphors happening in Out of the Woods. Like, did the event in the hospital room actually happen? Probably not. But she sets up visuals that are symbolic or allegorical and lets those small details like the 20 stitches in a hospital room do the heavy lifting in setting up the song's meaning. The song isn't asking if you feel like a plastic bag, then immediately moving on to ask if you also feel like a house of cards or like you're buried six feet under, then assuring you that you're actually a firework slash rainbow slash lightning bolt who's even brighter than the moon. 
those lyrics are fine, but they're meant to be really general and apply to pretty much anyone. There's no specificity. They're nonsense, honestly. Fun nonsense, but nonsense. Now to give Katie a little bit of credit here, I do want to point out what I think is her strongest song lyrically, though it is also like one of her most problematic songs. So let's acknowledge that You're So Gay is a bit of an offensive song, but listen to this first verse. I hope you hang yourself with your H&M scarf while jacking off listening to Mozart. You bitch and moan about LA, wishing you were in the rain reading Hemingway. You don't eat meat and drive electrical cars. You're so indie rock, it's almost an art. You need SPF 45 just to stay alive. I'm sorry, but those are her best lyrics. So maybe Katie's not totally incapable of being on Taylor's level, but she's certainly not putting in the work to get there. Because the rest of her career, kind of downhill from that song. Again, in terms of songwriting, that's not to negate any of her other talents as an artist. Now, despite all of the things that I have voiced as being disappointing for Midnight's as an album, it's still doing pretty well critically. And that's kind of the meat about what the podcast episode was about. We're in this moment of knee-jerk anointing of classics. We have music publications <laughs> out here saying immediately yeah, upon this album say it louder for the that publications it is, that it is back. perfect. And the fans expect everyone to fall in line and say that this album is perfect. And I think like if you consider your artists to be, as we've said, generational talents, the most important people making popular culture, like let's think and talk about these people in a real way. Like we are not stan communities. Like yes. we need John's review of this album. We love you, Joe. And you're totally right. Um, yep. Some of these yeah. other reviews are so embarrassing. They're so embarrassing. And you all should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, this album has an 85 on Metacritic, which is kind of an insanely high number relative to the overall, like, music industry. And 85 is, like, really, really good. And this album, I don't really think earned that. Like, Toflo's album that just came out, Dirt Femme, only has a 77. And I know that there's a different amount of critics that reviewed that album compared to Taylor's. But like, come on, 77 while Taylor gets an 85? Okay. So to talk about why I think that this is happening with Taylor's music and why I think she's kind of getting graded on a curve here, we've got to talk about the general concept of poptimism, a word used to describe a school of thought that more or less exists to be in opposition to another school of thought in music journalism called rockism. Now, rockism is basically the idea that pop music or anything that uses quote-unquote inauthentic ways of producing art is bad. The best way to break that down might be with some specific examples. So. If you know people who will complain about pop music because it's all made on computers, that's a kind of rockist belief that 
somehow computers aren't like a real instrument, unlike guitars or, I don't know, trumpets. And there's kind of an irony to that because a lot of people who hold rockist viewpoints will kind of romanticize the entire rock genre and say that that's like a more authentic version of music, even though most rock music after like 1950 became dominated by electric guitars, which a lot of music snobs around that time would uphold the same way that music snobs today look at computers. Like, electric guitars aren't real instruments. The only real instrument is an acoustic guitar. It's just a cycle that certain people refuse to get wise to. And by certain people, I mostly mean, like, white men, because they have some of the most rockist views of, like, any demographic, which can be exemplified in the disco demolition or the greater disco sucks movement. When masses of white men decided that a music genre that they couldn't really get into was automatically worse than the music that they liked, and they came up with really arbitrary reasons to defend that, like, all the lyrics are about partying and having a good time, and that's bad. And discotheques make DJs the center of public music consumption rather than live musicians, and that's also bad, even though it just makes more sense economically because you can pay a DJ, like, way less than you can pay a live band, but... Why blame capitalism when we could blame black and brown queer people? And you see echoes of the same shit today, when people complain that pop music is too repetitive, even though plenty of non-pop music is also very repetitive, or it's made with computers, which certain people seem to believe means that the computer just makes a song and you put your name on it and you don't need to do anything at all, there's no work involved in making a song that actually sounds good. No, the computer is just a magic machine, and it makes all the hit music that you hear on radio, and there is no human actually operating the computer, they just press a bunch of keys, and a hit comes out. <sighs> so stupid. And I'm aiming that directly at Corey Taylor. And of course, there's the backlash against autotune, or the prevailing idea that pop music is generic, and it all sounds the same, even though... All the music you hear on, like, rock stations also sounds very similar. It's all music that was made, like, 20 years ago, plus, like, Greta Van Fleet, which is basically a Led Zeppelin cover band. So, maybe if the overall community that loves rock music wasn't so fucking elitist and snobby, they could collaborate and get influences from other genres and diversify their sound a little bit more. But they don't want to do that. Because pop music is too corporate. Again, your issue is capitalism, not an entire music genre that exists outside of the confines of major label releases. And we can't pretend that rock music is not also very corporate. Like, why were so many people upset when Kiss made a disco song that fucking slapped, by the way, but then didn't mind anywhere near as much when they were becoming the band that sold more merchandise than any other artist in history? That's not too corporate for you, but they crossed a line with I was made for loving you? Fuck off. Like, how did we let Alice Cooper become so brazen like, he's a member of this much cooler, 
far superior club because he makes rock music, which is automatically cooler than pop music, to the point that he had an entire segment on one of his tours where he would depict the death of Britney Spears and hold a prop representing her decapitated head on stage, and nobody said shit about it because Britney Spears was the representative in the 2000s for shitty pop music, even though she made very, very good pop music. But there was this idea that pop music is just inherently soulless. It's too corporate. It's too safe. It doesn't actually say anything meaningful. Okay. And what does Alice Cooper's music say? Alice Cooper, the man who said that talking about your political beliefs as a musician is treason against rock and roll. Yeah, his career as a glorified theater kid is so much more meaningful than the work of Britney Spears. Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I, I grew up listening to all kinds of music, and I have always really liked rock music, but I have never been able to exist in the spaces that rock music fans hang out in because they're awful. They have this disdain of pop music that is just so transparently racist, misogynistic, and homophobic, and it's not my vibe. It's not all of them, obviously. Sometimes when I want to be mad, I will go onto YouTube and I'll just search videos of like rock fan reacts to pop music or something, and occasionally I will come across videos of people who are like genuinely just trying to open themselves up to new genres and new styles, and they are so lovely, and I love those people. But mostly I find the videos of the most smug, arrogant little fucking pricks who exist on this earth. And those are the people that I used to get into fights with in high school. Like the guy who once told me that choreographed dancing wasn't real art? I digress. Over the last, like, decade or so, there has been a big movement within music journalism to kind of squash a lot of those raucous viewpoints and uphold a greater sense of poptimism, which is basically just the idea that pop music is not inherently worse than whatever music the writers over at Pitchfork are raving over. Though Pitchfork has been affected by this too, they're not nearly as bad as they used to be. Like. In the early 2000s, they literally reviewed a Kylie Minogue album as an April Fool's Day joke. Because, you know, Kylie Minogue is a pop star, so it'd be funny if we took her seriously, right? They've at least evolved past that. Now, how good the Poptimist movement has been for the overall state of music criticism and music journalism is debatable. I'm gonna read some stuff that was written in the Washington Post a couple years ago from an article called do you want poptimism or do you want the truth? It writes, Poptimism's intentions are true blue. It contends that all pop music deserves a thoughtful listen and a fair shake, that guilty pleasures are really just pleasures, that the music of an Ariana Grande can and should be taken as seriously as that of a U2. Now, first of all, I love the fact that their example of a serious artist that we all take so seriously and we are all so thoughtful about in our critiques of their work is you too. Okay. I know they've made great music over the years, but in this case, over the years spans a time period of about four decades. 
and the output has certainly not been the most consistently praised. And that paragraph in itself, I think, kind of reveals what might actually be happening with a lot of the people who turn their nose up at the general Poptimist movement, because this sounds to me like the complaint of an older person. Not like old old, but certainly not a millennial. So might this debate be evidence of a generational divide, more so than a really thoughtful look at modern music? Yes. I'm gonna read more from the Washington Post, though. We'd like to believe that just that Justin Bieber's face isn't just a cosmic prank. We'd like to tell ourselves that Katy Perry's infantilizing Super Bowl splurge was somehow heroic. We want to feel as though our irrational universe obeys a hidden logic that we each belong to something greater than ourselves. What? What are you talking about? Now, this article was written in 2015, so I'm assuming that the comment about Justin Bieber was in reaction to the pretty good response Justin was getting from his Purpose album. And you don't have to like that album. But are you really going to imply that the success of Justin Bieber is of such, like, random universal nonsense that it's akin to a cosmic prank just because you don't really get it? Because that album went on to influence quite a lot of popular music thereafter. And if it was really that much of a cosmic prank for Justin Bieber to become as big as he did, then it must also be as cosmically random as a whole bunch of people deciding to mimic the sounds that he was releasing. You think all those people are just wrong. And you haven't considered that maybe you're just missing the appeal of something? That maybe you just don't like something and other people do? And maybe that's why? Justin is getting some pretty good reviews because other people just happen to genuinely like what he's doing. And then the Katy Perry infantilizing Super Bowl thing, it's like, dude, it's a Super Bowl performance. Katy Perry, as much as I might criticize her songwriting, is the exact fucking performer you want at the Super Bowl. She put on the performance that people want from that kind of show. What else were you expecting? A Super Bowl performance is never going to be like a transgressive rebellion of art and music. The closest you're going to get to that is Beyonce wearing a Black Panthers-inspired outfit briefly during a cold playset, or Lady Gaga saying the word transgender on stage, or MIA flipping off the camera, then getting sued for millions of dollars for doing that. Like, that's as close as you get to something really, like, remarkable and transgressive at the fucking Super Bowl. The program that is famously known as the most profitable event for advertisers on American television. You think that's the time that artists are gonna start taking huge risks and the NFL is gonna sit back and let that happen. The Super Bowl is infantilizing, period. It's the nature of the show. They're not there to challenge you Advertisers just want to sell you shit, and the NFL wants to make money. Yet again, why blame Katy Perry for the crimes of capitalism? It is okay for some things to just be well-made and fun. Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion album, for example. Is it some poignant, challenging work of art? No. 
but it's a fucking great pop album, and that's enough. Let's keep reading, though. More than a decade later, that's become a problem with poptimism, too. Just as rockism asserts that today's music isn't as good as it used to be, poptimism overcorrects by saying today's music is better than ever. And this can feel so reductive, so constrictive, so patently untrue, especially during the hangover of a surprise album release. This year, numerous A-listers will release their albums online with little to no warning. It's a nifty trick that Beyonce, Radiohead, and Kanye West have used with great success. If slash when Rihanna, Drake, and others drop surprise albums in coming months, music critics, who were once granted a head start on their opinions through advanced listens, will be hearing the music for the first time right along with the rest of the world. There's something refreshingly democratic about this new ritual, but its indifference to our critical metabolism only reinforces the poptimist consensus. For a good critic, listening to a recording should be like a skeptical stroll around the new car lot, not an unwrapping frenzy on Christmas morning. Listening alongside fans on social media racing toward a verdict, too many writers seem to be getting swept away in the love fest. Okay, now a couple things about this. Number one, I do think it's sort of funny that all this criticism was happening around the time that Beyonce and Kanye and others were starting to do surprise albums, and to complain about that when right after some of those artists were going to release some of the most critically acclaimed albums of their careers? A little funny. A little ironic. Like, whether or not all the artists were doing surprise drops, the period of, like, 2015 to 2017 was, like, a pretty good time for albums. You had, like, Lemonade, Life of Pablo, Blonde, Black Star, Emotion, Damn, To Pimp a Butterfly, Melodrama, Anti. Even if you don't like all of those albums, they certainly had quite a big impact on the general culture. So... Is this take about, like, is pop music today actually not that good? Seems a little tone deaf when the rest of the world is saying, yeah, we really like this stuff. Now, in terms of the new car lot thing or Christmas morning, I don't really see how the surprise album is your enemy. Whether or not you get an advanced copy of an album as a critic doesn't really seem contingent on the surprise release specifically. You could still not get an advanced copy with a singles-led campaign. That really seems like a complaint about the general relationship between record labels and music critics. Moreover, if you feel like you need months of lead-up with a singles-led campaign, rather than a surprise drop release, to be able to make a fair assessment of a record kinda seems like a you problem. If you need more time to sit with an album before you feel like you can make an opinion on it, talk to your editor. Or make an article about how internal trends within music journalism make you feel like you need to rush something out. Like, that seems like such a separate issue from the general topic of poptimism as a school of thought. Thinking that pop music is worthy of critical analysis is not the thing that's making it harder for you to write a thoughtful article. Now I wanted to go over all that just to preface what I'm going to say 
with my stance that a lot of the criticism of poptimism is just people with personal grievances because they don't like certain music that other people like. But there are things in this article that I do appreciate. For instance, this excerpt. Good criticism should reflect the complexity of our engagement by increasing the complexity of the conversation. And good critics should be more excited about getting their boots dirty than making friends on Twitter. We're all individuals listening closely to the sounds of an increasingly unstable world. A clash of opinions will only help us better understand our own. Plunging headfirst into dissensus feels like our best and only option. Now that I agree with, and I do think that Poptimism, while generally a good, positive school of thought that will progress us into actually having really substantive conversations about popular media, is still prompting some popular media to be graded on a curve. And I think that social media has a lot to do with that. There's maybe a combination of a fear of backlash because, obviously, social media is full of different standums in different groups that will mobilize against people who speak out against their chosen fave. So if you write a bad review of Midnight's, you're gonna get responses from Swifties who are really upset about that. And in combination with that, I think there is a genuine effort made by some critics to not be the snobby indie bro writer that gets seen as an elitist. Like I said earlier with that tweet about taking Midnight's lyrics and pairing them with Folklore's instrumentation, I think the tweeter is wrong in their assessment, but I still understand that defensiveness, given how pop music has been derided and labeled as superficial in the past, and I think there's a noble effort amongst some critics to give popular media, especially that with a very dedicated following, like the fucking Swifties, the benefit of the doubt in their reviews based on the idea that if a piece of work means so much to a group of people, it must be working on a higher level than a mediocre review would imply. And I think that that goes for media forms beyond just pop music or music in general. I honestly see it the most with film, specifically with the ridiculously high reviews that the MCU films tend to get. Now I'm saying this as someone who knows that she's a little snobby. Like I did go to college for film, I'm kind of an asshole in some ways, but I must impress upon you that I am nowhere near the snobbiest of the film majors that you will come across. There are a lot of people who will needlessly trash modern film styles and blockbusters that are made to appeal to mass markets just because they think they're cool enough to do it. And I know I'm not cool enough to do that. I am a huge advocate for mass appeal media. The reason I get frustrated with Marvel movies is the same reason I'm picking apart lyrics in different Taylor Swift songs. Art made for people with niche interests is great, but something that's able to thrive in the mainstream and still hold artistic value is just, like, transformative. Like, I'm not a comic book girl, and action movies generally are not my thing, but Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is, like, my favorite movie of all time. So it's really insane to me when I see Spider-Man Far From Home got a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. That movie is not that fucking good. 
Jake Gyllenhaal's villain is two-dimensional, the plot is predictable, and all the MC movies are so afraid of getting called cheesy that they undercut every possible display of earnestness with some postmodern ironic bullshit. These are not great movies. Even the properties that occasionally do something interesting, like WandaVision or Black Panther, still get weighed down by their ultimate adherence to MCU formulas because the best thing an individual entry into the MCU can be at this point is serviceable. Another decent continuation of the same shit we've been watching for a fucking decade. And in the same way, Midnight's is just another serviceable Taylor Swift album. It's not amazing. It's good. It's well made. It's better than any album Katy Perry could write. But it doesn't even touch what Taylor has proven herself capable of making. And we are not doing Taylor Swift or pop music any favors by pretending it's something more than what it is. Midnight's is like Spider-Man No Way Home. I am giving it No Way Home. I'm not giving it Far From Home. So let that be noted. I don't think it's that bad. And the Folkmore albums are Spider-Man 2. Well, okay. Spider-Man 2 is like a perfect movie. And Folkmore is not quite perfect. But you get what I mean. Folkmore is the first half of WandaVision. Now there are some other hot takes about Midnight's that I'm kind of skipping over. The backlash against Jack Antonoff, not gonna touch that. Or the allegations of queer baiting. You know, I, I will actually, I'll touch on that for a second, because my stance is really gonna be the same as always. I don't really like applying the word queer baiting to human beings. I think that asking someone to come out for the sake of ending queer baiting allegations means pressuring someone to come out of the closet before they're really ready or possibly before they even understand their own sexuality, so I'm against it. But I have seen some tweets that <laughs> will say that like the Gaylor theories are silly because Taylor Swift is the most heterosexual woman alive, and that I disagree with. I don't really think that it's right morally to try to declare another person's sexuality for them, so like I'm not gonna stand by what I'm about to say in like a moral sense, but I am still gonna say it. Because Taylor Swift has said that she's straight and I should take her word for it, but I just, I feel like I have a really good gaydar when it comes to women specifically, and that bitch is bisexual. I, I don't know what it is, there's just something sapphic about her. It's sapphic in like a horse girl kind of way, and I think that the horse girl part is what throws some people off because horse girl energy is definitely something that thrives within like a heteronormative framework. But let's be honest, horse girls are kind of the gayest hetero girls. Maybe, maybe second to JROTC girls, but still pretty gay. And Taylor Swift just, she has those vibes. I'm not going off any of the gayler theories about her and Carly Kloss. I'm literally just going off of the vibes. But let's move on to what might be the longest segment in this episode. So, one thing that got brought up on the podcast was the so-called Olivia Wilde feminism in this album. This is a bit Don't Worry Darling the album. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. Oof. I'm just Oof. gonna leave that right uh -huh. there. I'm taking that to mean feminism that's very surface level. Uh, I didn't watch Don't Worry Darling though. 
even though I did like a whole podcast episode about the promotion of the movie, and it's on HBO Max now, so I, I could watch it at any time. I just haven't. But I, I get the gist of what they're saying. The lyrics that were specifically noted were those on Midnight Rain, so he wanted a bride, I was making my own name, and then Lavender Haze, all they keep asking me is if I'm going to be your bride, the only kind of girl they see is a one night or a wife. So this is seen as kind of a surface level assessment of gender roles. Specifically on Lavender Haze, Taylor is referencing the Madonna Horror Complex, which is a well-known and much-discussed point of discourse within feminist analyses. It is pretty basic. Now, it doesn't really bother me in these songs because I just have a personal affinity for women in seemingly domesticated roles asserting their individualism. By that I mean, like, domestic life in our culture really does serve to erase women's identities. When you get married, you're expected to change your last name, or you take on the Mrs. abbreviation, which is literally spelled as MRS, like Misters. And the fact that women go from Ms. to Mrs. and men stay Misters their whole lives, it's all just based on gendered expectations that women will minimize themselves once they get into domesticated roles. And stuff like that is fine, by the way. Like, I don't think that you're doing anything wrong if you choose to change your last name when you get married. It's all, it's all cool, but it's the expectations that we, we gotta think about. Statistically, men also earn more money after becoming fathers than they did before breeding while many mothers struggle to even find suitable employment after having a child. So for me, knowing that Taylor Swift is in a stable, happy relationship with a man, which she sings about often, hearing her also sing lyrics actively struggling with the idea of being someone's bride is very satisfying to me, because I think that a lot of women struggle with holding on to their identity after becoming a wife or a mother, in taking on these very domesticated roles. And it's specifically satisfying to me because Taylor Swift often writes from the perspective of a typical young girl. That is why young girls gravitate to her music, because her songs feel like diary entries that they can relate to. So even when writing from a place of anger or power, she kind of has this innate femininity that women connect to. And I think that it's really cool that she's able to embody the role of the femininely styled singer-songwriter while still voicing opposition to just being seen as someone's bride. I see that as a really genuine expression, culture that is specifically aimed at young girls. It as a calculated political statement, so I think that's why it doesn't really bother me with the lyrics in those songs. And the song that I actually like the most in this regard specifically is Bejeweled, which is about being in a more or less happy relationship with a man while still having a yearning to live as an independent person. Specifically, I really love the lyrics, I made you my world, have you heard, I can reclaim the land, and I miss you, but I miss sparkling. I like that. And as a side note, I also really like the little nice exclamations that she puts kind of behind the main vocals. And there was a discussion either in the main podcast episode or in the mailbag episode, I don't remember, 
but a question about whether or not Taylor Swift understands camp. Because that is kind of a campy addition to the song. And where I stand on that is, yes, absolutely, Taylor Swift knows camp. To a degree. Now, Taylor Swift is, in a lot of ways, a representative for girl culture. And girl culture is something that I think is kind of forced to become camp by how it will be deemed superficial by the wider culture. So Twilight is an example. Twilight is kind of camp. It's a movie that feels very extravagant in its complete indulgence and adolescent female desire. And the fandom that currently surrounds Twilight certainly has learned to have a really good sense of humor and humility about it. And that kind of sense of irony is definitely something that is very important to camp. And since Taylor has become such a spokesperson for girl culture, I think that makes her more capable of exhibiting camp in her work than people want to give her credit for. I mean, she's got like real theater kid energy. The Look What You Made Me Do music video? That's fucking camp. Out of the Woods is also a little camp. Like, she was a pretty big artist. I have to imagine she had the means to make a music video that looked a little bit less synthetic, but that's the way the video is stylized. And it's a little campy. Now, Taylor doesn't understand camp the way that maybe like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry might, but I think there is an element of camp that does come pretty natural to her just by nature of being the sapphic horse girl that she is. Now, all that being said, as much as I like Bejeweled the song, Bejeweled the music video goes so far past the point of Olivia Wilde feminism that it starts to get into, like, Camila Cabello feminism, which is worse. Specifically, I'm referring to the Camila Cabello Cinderella adaptation with James Corden, which Bejeweled is basically that movie, but squeezed into the runtime of, like, six minutes. I do not like this video. It is the same kind of postmodern irony that annoys me in Marvel movies, and also something that annoys me in Marvel movies, there's too many fucking cameos. Bejeweled has Laura Dern, the Heim sisters, Dita Von Teese, Pat McGrath, Jack Antonoff. It's, it's annoying. It's too much. Even in Antihero, there were a lot of cameos there, but I was kind of willing to let it go because seeing Mike Birbiglia in a Taylor Swift music video is just kind of weird enough that I, I, would, I was okay with it. How did they become friends? Anyway, the main problem with this music video is that it has some very on-the-nose writing that is specifically made to address things that can be marketed as feminist. Art is supposed to feel like it mimics some sort of real-life experience, and that's kind of hard to accomplish when it's bending over backward to preach a very basic principle. So, for example, the new adaptations of Disney princess movies do this all the fucking time. The Beauty and the Beast remake especially, where you have Belle reading books, as she does in the original film. But unlike in the original film, the new adaptation has to beat you over the fucking head with the fact that she's reading books and include a whole bunch of dialogue of other characters being like, why is she reading? She's a girl. 
And then we as the audience are supposed to be like, oh, that's so sexist. Because everyone in modern society agrees that that is sexist, that girls should be able to read books. You're not introducing any feminist talking points that might be controversial. I have yet to see one of these Disney remakes address abortion. I will admit that my disdain for this kind of writing is very inconsistent. Because in the Cinderella with Brandy? I doubt if he has any idea how a girl should be treated. Like a princess, I suppose. No, like a person with kindness and respect. I am not rolling my eyes at that. I am cheering. I'm like, oh my god, she's so right. Even though it's pretty much the same kind of thing that the Disney remakes do. And also, I I do put my name in my boyfriend's context as Princess Jasmine. So I'm even contradicting myself. But that's fine. I contain multitudes. But I did roll my eyes throughout the Bejeweled music video. Like the whole, she ghosted the prince but kept the castle thing. It just really crossed a line for me. But this is where I have to begin my diatribe here. Because I have just this personal hatred of the, the instinct to deem things as feminist or not, specifically based on whether or not they dress inequality in a really blunt form. So, for example, The Man would be considered like a feminist song. It doesn't go that deep. It's not a total deconstruction of the patriarchy, but it is a fun song that makes some good points, even if they're relatively simple ones, so the man doesn't bother me, to be clear. But there are other versions of this kind of songwriting, such as Dua Lipa's Boys Will Be Boys song, which I think is a likable song melodically, and the production is good. The lyrics themselves are it's just like a hodgepodge of feministy buzzwords like mansplain that feel very showy in its feminism and isn't really that substantive because the words are used in such a haphazard kind of way that they don't feel that meaningful. Now, whether or not you're totally getting down with my criticism of those songs, my larger point here is that in order for a song to be considered feminist, like those songs have been considered, it has to address something really specific about a very easy to spot gender inequality. And I find the limitations of that frustrating. I think that we need to widen our perspective on what feminist songwriting or feminist storytelling can mean. So I'm going to make us talk about movies a little bit more because I wrote about this in an old blog post about my frustrations on the feminist reclaiming of Jennifer's body. To be clear, I do think Jennifer's body is a feminist film, but I don't think it's a feminist film specifically because of the focus on the rape metaphor of Jennifer's sacrifice. So if you've seen Jennifer's body, you probably understand what I'm talking about. There's a scene where Jennifer is sacrificed. This isn't really a spoiler, by the way, because it happens, like, at the beginning of the movie. I am going to spoil, like, a couple things going forward, but, like, it came out over ten years ago, so you had time to see it. I'm going to read a little bit of that blog post that I wrote. The post was called, Your Jennifer's Body Hot Takes Are Missing the Point. It makes sense that the sexual assault aspect of the story has become a central part of the film's discourse, both for what it says about the female experience as well as what it says about how female stories are consumed. 
but how this aspect has dominated Jennifer's body discourse occasionally minimizes the larger themes the film attempts to explore. In Constance Grady's Vox piece entitled How Jennifer's Body Went from a Flop in 2009 to a Feminist Cult Classic Today, the article mentions briefly, in one paragraph, that the central relationship between Jennifer and Needy is at the core of the film's emotional truth. The article mostly discusses, however, Jennifer's body's resonance in a post-Me Too world. Grady at least seems to have watched and understood the film, but the more Jennifer's body's status as a feminist cult classic becomes reliant on its loose connection to sexual assault, the more I see critics blatantly missing the more nuanced feminism the film blatantly presents. On July 27th of this year, the YouTube channel The Take posted a video entitled Jennifer's Body and the Horrific Female Gaze. In it, they claim after Jennifer's attack, her sole focus becomes the destruction of anyone who reminds her of her assailants or is a symptom of a culture of violence against women, namely boys. I won't mince words, this is a bad take. There is no textual evidence that Jennifer's sole focus is ever the destruction of anyone who reminds her of her assailants, nor does she display any recognition of the culture of violence against women. The take tries to support their claim by playing a clip of Jennifer saying, I'm killing boys, to imply that Jennifer's real target was the patriarchy or something. Though that line is not in the final cut of the film. That ignores the context of most of Jennifer's demonic attacks. When her classmate Colin asked Jennifer on a date to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Jennifer is initially disinterested until Needy says she thinks Colin is really cool. Jennifer changes demeanor on the spot and invites him to watch Aquamarine, then directs him to an abandoned subdivision where she rips him apart with her teeth. In her cut with that scene is Needy's loss of virginity to her boyfriend Chip, Jennifer's next and final victim. Jennifer's victims, at least her final two, weren't chosen because they reminded her of her assailants or acted as some representation for rape culture. They were chosen because Jennifer's friend Needy voiced interest in them. Jennifer's body is far less of a Me Too-adjacent revenge fantasy and more of a psychological horror in which two young girls manipulate and destroy one another. So, my point here is that while proclaiming that Jennifer's body is feminist horror, a lot of viewers have chosen to focus on the metaphorical rape within the story, because rape is an act of gendered violence, usually, though, of course, anyone from any gender can be raped. So that's the representation of the feminism within the film. And that's really frustrating since the entire rest of the movie is about the relationship between two young women. And this whole, like, Jennifer's body is a Me Too revenge story also enables people to say that the girl-on-girl -girl kissing scene is unnecessary and an example of the male gaze, which drives me fucking nuts because how can it be unnecessary when Needy has clearly had a lesbian crush on Jennifer the whole movie? But I guess people just don't notice that because they're focusing on the wrong fucking shit. The point is, sometimes things can be feminist not by making a specific blatant commentary on the big bads of the patriarchy, like rape or the right to abortion or the pay gap or anything like that. Sometimes things can be feminist just by featuring an unflinching emphasis on the lived female experience. Not every woman will be raped. But most women will, at some point, have a weirdly close and intimate friendship with another woman that becomes extremely toxic and self-destructive over time. And I know that I might be painting with too broad of a brush here, but considering that that plot makes up so many movies that young girls gravitate to, not just Jennifer's Body, but also Mean Girls, Bring It On, Heathers, The Craft, 
bridesmaids, books marked. I feel pretty confident that it's a very common experience among young women. And don't think that it was fucking lost on me, by the way, that Jennifer references Aquamarine in the dialogue of that movie. And Aquamarine is another film that's about female friendship. How this relates to Taylor Swift is, Taylor Swift's songwriting has always deserved to be parsed from a feminist lens. Even without songs like The Man or Mad Woman or Lavender Haze or Midnight Rain or the Bejeweled music video, in fact, I think the best example of Taylor Swift's feminist songwriting is all too well specifically the 10-minute version. As I've already said, Taylor has become a representative for girl culture. And let's go back to people shitting on Taylor for would've, could've, should've because it's about a relationship that she was in when she was 19. There is a cultural gaslighting involved in the idea that there's a time limit to how long trauma can affect you. And that's a gaslighting that is primarily lobbied against women who express their grievances, especially those against likable men. Like, apparently, John Mayer. I guess people like him. So, for all too well, with Taylor taking a song that she had originally written a decade ago, re-releasing it, spotlighting it by making it a single, filming a music video for it, singing it on SNL, and then also doubling its length. That's fucking cool. I know there are some questions about if she actually wrote all of it back in 2012. I know that there was a 10-minute version that existed prior to 2021. I just don't know that these lyrics are the final version. I think she probably took some time since it was a vault track and other people hadn't heard it yet to edit it a bit more. And you know what? I commend her for that because that's what I would do. Because it must be a pain in the ass, right? To have to re-record stuff that you wrote when you were sometimes a teenager for some of those songs and not be able to change them because everyone already heard them and so they know what it was supposed to sound like. A big sticking point for a lot of people with the All Too Well 10-minute version was the line about the fuck the patriarchy keychain. I just want to weigh in on this like really briefly just because I'm unsure of it. Do we think that the fuck the patriarchy thing is specifically referencing a keychain? Because I think that it could also be read as Jake Gyllenhaal, the person that the song is about, threw a keychain at the ground and yelled fuck the patriarchy at her. I'm not saying that that's like the reading that I think is correct. I just, I don't know. Is it, are we, are we married to the idea that the keychain said fuck the patriarchy and not that Jake Gyllenhaal said fuck the patriarchy as he threw the keychain on the ground? Because he kind of seems like the type, right? To do like the ironic sexism, like referencing the patriarchy as if women can't drive, right? That sounds like something he would do. Anyway, that line became a really big sticking point for people who think that Taylor didn't write those lyrics in 2012. And I think that that's like a, a good point. I don't know that Taylor Swift would write Fuck the Patriarchy in a song that early in her career, but for me, the bigger tell that I don't think she actually wrote those lyrics in 2012 are all the lyrics that reference her age. And I was never good at telling jokes, but the punchline goes, I'll get old. 
Now, granted, she was referencing her age gap with John Mayer back in the Speak Now era, and that was before the Red era, so I don't think that she was incapable of being aware of that power dynamic, but there's just something about the All Too Well lyrics that it really sounds to me like an adult woman reflecting back on a relationship that she was in at a really young age. It has a kind of hindsight and maturity that Taylor Swift may have definitely been capable of in 2012, but to me it, it actually just kind of works better as a song written by an older Taylor Swift, a woman who's gone on to have many different life experiences and yet still has the self-respect to look back at something that happened when she was 20 years old and say, I don't care if this stuff sounds trivial to other people. It happened to me. It affected me. And it still matters. And if I have to take 10 minutes to express what I went through nine years ago, after I first sang about this relationship, I will. And that is the kind of songwriting that I think makes Taylor Swift a great songwriter, a feminist songwriter, and the voice of a lot, a lot of young girls. There is something so powerful about hearing Taylor repeat the lines at the end of that song, I was there, I was there, it was rare, you remember it. I think that Taylor's lasting legacy as a songwriter will be as the voice of a generation of girls who refuse to have their own feelings and experiences minimized. And for that reason, I will reiterate, she could have done better than Midnight's. An album that kind of minimizes her own legacy by not giving itself the proper space to actually explore her most significant experiences in depth. The end.